Thank you, Ajahn. So there are one or two questions that people have um, written. Just to start with one of them, if I do something unwillingly, does that create karma? Well, it is it. Action is karma. Um, when you say unwillingly, what does that mean? If you do it, you do it, right? Now, one we'll also say that karma is not like uh, um, black and white. It means there are different gradations of it. So if we do something with deliberate, full-on intention, that's like throwing a ball down really hard. You get a big bounce, right? It's like throwing a load of voltage electricity. You get a huge result. If you do something thinking, oh, well, I don't yeah, then you get less result. So if you're doing something you call unwillingly, you probably get less of a, of a, of a negative result. If it's bad karma, get less of a negative result. So there's a tense in terms of velocity. Also, some karma takes a lot longer to ripen than other karma. So it depends also how far you throw the ball and when it's going to bounce. <laughs> now, unfortunately, some of the karma that we act upon is because we've inherited certain prejudices and biases. So we act without really knowing what we're doing. Yeah? And this, of course, racism is a very... Uh, a uh, stark example of this, um, you know, people are not necessarily overtly, but can have subtle racist undertones because that's, the, that's what they've learned. They've learned offensive language. They've learned certain attitudes and they don't even know really what they're doing. Yeah. So our process is to keep examining so that we're not, even if we're doing it without full knowledge, we're still doing something that has an effect on other people and it keeps us in a particularly blind, automatic state, which is not good. Okay. This is from somebody. I have a question about forgiveness. I did something terrible years ago. I became accountable and made amends and have never repeated the pattern. My girlfriend has still never forgiven me, and yet I know I am different. And yet I still feel heartbroken and still have not forgiven myself. There is still the shame. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, well, cleaning. Cleaning these uh, uh, regretful uh, uh, residues of our actions is a process essentially carried out by the uh, Brahma Vihara, the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciation and equanimity. Um, these, are, these are the cleansings of the heart, um, which again is something that should be done very thoroughly every day um, towards yourself and towards anybody you've been in contact with. It is, you know, we're doing this coronavirus thing where we're wiping your hands all the time, right? You know, we do do that with your mind because you know you can spread these viruses around, and you know. Um, and one t retains the imprint of things one did years ago. And we know in our rational minds, well, I can't take that back. But the heart is not a rational system. You leave an imprint. You put a, you put a footprint there. You put a, you put a blotch on that. And you can't rationalise it away. Nor, nor should you keep regurgitating how bad you are. You need to attend to it. And the, the focus of attention is towards making resolution not to act in that way again, and then towards yourself, 
may I be well, uh, act foolishly, may foolishness in me be released, uh, and towards anybody else you feel you may have affected. And you hold all that in a sense of compassion for yourself and for others, and in fact for the whole in human condition in which we are just pretty much constantly affecting each other and being affected by each other. You know, so it's a, we're very contagious. Uh, <laughs> and so we're picking up effects and we can't help it. You know? I mean, even the Buddha, some people didn't like him. Uh, now, what's he supposed to do about that? <laughs> you know, so you say, well, there's a sense of compassion because people do get upset and they, they do retain these impressions. Uh, you make yourself available, compassion towards yourself, kindness for yourself, also equanimity. Some things break and some relationships break and they don't get, they don't get fixed. There's a bit of scar tissue. Um, and that realistically, that's true, it doesn't always get fixed. So some things we just have to, okay. Uh, be economist to this place of, of some regret in ourselves. But at least you don't keep rehashing it all the time, re-agonising re over it. I hope that's useful. Everybody does stupid things. <laughs> There's an earlier question, Ajahn, saying, how do you know when you have reached the end of karma? <laughs> uh, well, uh, <laughs> you wait. <laughs> it means, I guess, for a start, you, you've got no more buttons to be pushed. Uh, this is why it's always useful. They say you, you don't really know if you're enlightened until you go and live with your family. Then you'll find out. <laughs> you've got any buttons left, they're going to push them, right? <laughs> they know where to go. So you think you've got it cool because you had a great retreat out on a mountaintop somewhere and you're just totally chilled. Okay, very good. You go back home and see what happens then. You know? <laughs> so you might get breaks in it, which is magnificent. You do a retreat and you feel great. That's very good. But it doesn't mean that underlying tendencies have been released. Um, so the Buddha is saying, you know, when you walk down Main Street, right, and you're not getting affected, you're not getting disturbed, Mm, this is really good. So you have to test yourself out in many, many situations. But the quality, the feeling is like there's no push. There's no have to. There's no momentum. There's no stirring. It's just, uh-huh. The Buddha likened it to being like a broken bell. You hit it and it doesn't ring. It's just, uh-huh. So we need to test ourselves out in many situations to see uh, how true that is. Another question, Ajahn, what do we do when we realise we are being activated by something from our past triggered by a current event, e.g. feelings of being emotionally unsafe in certain situations? Yeah. Um, well, what I would recommend is um, go to your body, the awareness of your body. Mm. Because uh, although though, uh, emotional effects do affect the body, 
And we have this interconnection between our body, our hearts and our thoughts. So particularly when we get emotionally activated, generally the body feels tense or stirred um, and so forth. But generally, this is almost always in only certain locations in your body, like your chest or your throat or your head or your belly. You don't get your knees don't start trembling generally, you know, when you <laughs> or, your, or your ears. <laughs> so if you go to the whole body, you generally find a somewhere that's cool. And generally the idea is you go down your back, if you go down your back spine and down into the floor, that's a pretty cool place that it's not getting triggered by anything. So you go to that and it gives you a kind of a refuge point when you can come off the effective area and just start to, to reset yourself like, okay, grounded, stable, steady. Okay, when I'm there, now take a breath. Okay, now, now I'm already slightly lifted, leveraged away from this activated zone. Therefore, then I can respond from a dispassionate, cooler place. Um, so I suggest this is a strategy. Um, when you find that's happening, don't think it. Your thinking mind's no good at that time. No good at all. Um, don't get upset about it. That doesn't do you any good. Go to your body because your body is the place. There's places in your body that are not being activated and they'll give you somewhere where your mind can refer to that gives you a stable reference point where you can step back and say, okay, now from here, let go of that program, let go of that response. Don't worry about that. Uh, just find your, find your time. Calm down. This is what you need to do. Generally, when we get activated, we kind of am I going to thinking what we need to do, and thinking what you need to do is uh, generally not a good idea when you're being stirred up because you, your thinking goes along with what you're being stirred up by, and you get defensive or reactive or blaming or you know furtive or well, I didn't really mean that you know denying things all <laughs> sort of strategies. The thinking mind tries to do. <laughs> it's all just rabbit in the headlight stuff, you know. <laughs> so you just go to the body. Okay. Right. Getting stirred up, getting stirred up. Quick, what do you need to do now? Just say, could you give me a couple of minutes? I just need to, you know, something. Or drop your keys on the floor or something. Excuse me, I've got to pick things up. Or, oh, somebody's on the phone. <laughs> Anyway, you can just slow the process down and then you can return with a bit more clearer space, clearer attention. <laughs> okay. There's a question, Ajahn. Should we interfere with someone's karma? For example, if someone does stupid things because of their karma, do we do anything? <laughs> mm, fine point. I mean... You look at the example of the Buddha, yes and no. Um, you know, the Buddha generally made himself available and then he'd see if there was an opening. You know, okay, this person looks like they could possibly pick something up or just start to in inquire. So even bringing one's presence into somebody else's uh, world 
can be used like a flag. Hey, you know, there's this to somebody spinning around in their own stuff. You're just a steady presence. At least it interrupts their stirred, stirred up state with just presence. Um, but of course, you don't want to overdo it because they can end up getting stirred up by you. And you get the same thing, you get involved and projected upon as being the interfering so-and-so, even if you're trying to do good. And so you get dragged in as part of this psychodrama. Um, so the first thing is just out of compassion, just, well, here I am, and I can listen, if you like. Yeah. So it gives the person charged to discharge their energies or their moods or something. As to what you can do, you can't do anything. You can encourage another person to do. Right? Even the Buddha said, I can only point the way. I can't get in there and operate your mind for you. If he did, it wouldn't be true because you've got to do it. So you can be a presence that encourages another person to see an alternative way of approaching their issues or their mind states. Um, and if they want, they can ask you for advice. But I think you've got to go in slowly and gradually, not because one's reluctant, but because you know it's an extremely potent area in which if you move in too fast, too strong, you could end up making the problem worse. And you end up getting negative results yourself and stress and getting tired out as well. Thank you, Ajahn. Just, just to vary the pace a little bit and maybe give you a moment's respite, I wondered if anybody wants to make any comments from the floor. Thank you. Good idea. Um, so <laughs> anybody wants to um, offer a comment or...? Hey, there's Carol. Hello, Carol. Alexandra. Let's say hello, everybody. Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering the events around us and the people around us, everything is changing. Um, there is a lack of confidence um, in oneself in dealing with even assessing what a, what is one feeling and how is that affecting and then um, it contributes to a lot of confusion because all these latent things, things we think we are gone past, they suddenly, those bad habits rear their heads. Um, so navigating in this ever-changing um, situation, just even from my own heart and also handling what's going on outside. I feel like there is some confidence lacking any word of advice, Ajahn. Take it on too much. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're taking on too much. Right now, we're in this predicament where you can plug into the, the confusion of seven billion people. <laughs> Just dealing with your own is enough already. <laughs> you know, the confused constellations of, of craziness that are going on. Yeah. Um, but you maybe notice particular current themes. This is, this, is, this is what happens when people start dominating each other. This is what happens when people don't listen to each other. This is what happens when people look down on each other. You see certain underlying tendencies. This is when people are dismissive or materialist. So you, you learn something, but you can't, you know, you just can't manage that much stuff. 
you know, the Buddha was pretty clear that he said, you know, you've got to, the, you, you know, your resp- your fundamental responsibility is to get yourself off the wheel, off this, out of this continuum. That's your fundamental responsibility because you're the only one who can do it. And you can't fix anybody else. You can encourage a few to to look into their own minds and fix themselves. That even you know, and the Buddha did that solidly for all forty five years of his life, and there was still crazy stuff going on. There was still people hacking each other to pieces and all kinds of skullduggery going on. <laughs> and he just just go, okay, I can do this. this. Is what I can do. I'll do that. Because uh, then you got you you know you got to, how much capacity do you have, uh, and the heart is really a boundless quality. It doesn't have boundaries, so you can be affected by anything, future, past, ten thousand miles away. You can be affected by anything, and so the heart you have to give it boundaries. Otherwise, it just gets overwhelmed and no, you don't process anything. You just get saturated and overwhelmed. So you've got to find time to just say, okay, that's enough. Focus on just finding your own, dealing with your own stuff, priority. And it may sound callous, but if everybody dealt with their own stuff, you wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> Instead of people trying to tell everybody else what to do. <laughs> You know, which is politics, right? <laughs> Gordon. Hi there, Gordon. Obviously, five years have been on this path. I noticed that I'm not the same person. I noticed that my mind is very, very silent, very still. Um, I noticed I, I can't remember the last time I got angry. But there again, my question is, I can't remember the last time I was very, very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it sounds like your memory's not that much good. <laughs> it could be a number of things, couldn't it? Um, maybe you've lived a quiet life. Or maybe, just, you've, maybe your practice has got to the point where your jitter is not getting so affected by everything. Because it's it's true, after if you've been doing forty five years of practice, your your mind has probably, you know, let go of a lot of passion and agitation. Now, what what do you do? You miss the happiness. I just noticed. I just noticed. I'm not really affected by it, but the lack of happiness. Mm -hmm. But it's not unhappiness. It's just cool, is it? Even, even. Well, that sounds not bad to me. Yeah. As I say, you know, can always test it out by engaging with a few people. That tends to bring things up. If there's anything there to be brought up, come and stay in the monastery. We'd get you agitated sooner or later. All right. Thank you. just ask Ajahn um, about his book. Um, he wrote Karma and the End of Karma a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the last time we saw you at Hartridge, you did say that you aim to do a rewrite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering whether you've had time to um, consider doing that. Yeah, it's um, it's work in progress. Okay. It should. Uh, it takes. It's. It's surprising how much how much it takes when you get round to things like punctuation and spaces and you know all kinds of bits and pieces. You know, I send it out for comments, so various people give comments. So I try to, you know, take on board all the comments and. You know, keep adjusting it so that it's not—it's as reader-friendly as possible. Have you, have you had made many editions? Yes, yes, it's almost a completely new, new book now. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you don't know when it may be available. I would think by the end of July it should be around as an e-book, but I. But thank you. Okay. That's all. Yeah, Gilly. Yeah. Thank you, Gilly. Hi, John. Okay, I just wonder how the mechanism of karma affects those who have entered into the Bodhisattva tradition, the one that puts off his own or her own salvation to help others in this realm. Mm, indeed. Yeah, well, that's not my tradition, so I don't really have to comment on it. <laughs> but I suppose the, uh, the, point, the interesting point is, of course, the Buddha and the Arahants after they were liberated, they still did a lot of action. So action doesn't necessarily mean that you get the result, that you're bound into it, because what they've severed is a sense of identification. So I'd imagine that pertains to the Bodhisattva, that uh, there's still action, but you don't, you don't accumulate the results because there's nobody there to accumulate it. There's no holding to residues, no grasping at, at consequences. The mind is not attracted to it. So it's a completely dispassionate action with no accumulation of residues. Can we just go back to some of the questions? Because there's lots of people have posed questions now. Mm -hmm. 22, yeah. Yeah, too much social media. I think that really touches into the... Um, the question that Vidge launched. If you get too much social media, too much, you're just getting saturated. You don't you shouldn't do too much of that because so much of it's just people's opinions and views and it just overwhelms the mind. So I think definitely you know, freeing up some time, don't get into too much social media. Uh whenever something unpleasant happens to us, should we consider it to be the result of our own past karma? No, it's not the case. The Buddha said there are six reasons why you experience things and only one of those is through karma. Some it's just accidental, you know. Earthquake happened, that's not because you're a bad boy or girl, because earthquakes happen. Um, that's not because of your karma. Um, so a lot of things that happen are just basically you got born. That was, that was the only thing that you did. <laughs> and you got onto this plane where stuff gets launched at you. So not everything that occurs is because of your past karma, because of past actions. Um, how to react to a situation with accepting it? Someone speaks harshly to me, I tend to just accept it and remain silent. Instead of explaining to them that this is unacceptable. I feel that this approach is not helpful all the time. You're correct. Acceptance is certainly one element in, uh, in practice. I think one can make too much of it. Acceptance is not supposed to be just being a doormat. Acceptance means 
that instead of the reaction, there's acknowledgement, okay, that's happened, I accept the presence of that, that feeling, that surge, that it's happening to me, right. Instead of closing it down or blaming somebody for it, there's an openness to that. I need to find a place where I can, I can be with that without reacting to it. That's the end of acceptance. Then, from that open place, response. Response may be, well, I need to say something here. But if you're coming from a cool place, it's not going to be, you shouldn't this and that. Say, from a cool place, you say, um, can I just mention something? Can I, excuse me, yeah. Can I, yeah. Can I just say something? It's quite important right now. No, it's really important I get this out. Um, yeah, what you said affected me this way. I need to let you know that. And if we're going to continue dialogue, then I think it's important that um, we're both responsible for what we're saying and the effects of them. So please give, let's give each other feedback on what we're saying. In other words, you have to interrupt in a polite, respectful way. Otherwise, there's no point going on just getting letting somebody hammer on you not for your own well only for your own welfare but for their welfare because if they keep acting in stupid offensive ways they're accumulating a huge amount of bad karma so it's helpful to be able to give people negotiated feedback does nature have karma well it depends what you mean by nature um, we are nature we are the bit of nature that essentially has choice. Um, so choice is one of the features of karma. Volcanoes don't have a choice because they've got no way of monitoring what they're doing. Animals don't have much choice. We have a lot of choice. That's the beauty of the human condition. Um, why human experience is the most significant one for liberation because we have a profound degree of ability to choose if we use it. <laughs> But the rest of nature doesn't. It's kind of less built in. Our cat here cannot stop chasing birds and, and, and trying to catch rabbits. Yeah. No matter how much we feed it and model blameless behaviour, it never picks it up. It's, it's just built in reactivity. Um, I mean, you can train animals to a degree, it's true, but human beings have got a very, very great capacity to adjust and monitor. So we are the pieces that have karma in that sense. Everything else tends to be locked in. Next question, isn't Buddhism all about feeling happy about yourself and taking on all the good things in your life? Hmm, well, <laughs> I'll sign up for that. <laughs> but uh, it also is about liberation, which means understanding the bad things. Uh, Certainly we need to take in the good things to uh, give ourselves strength, but we also need to look at the, uh, some of the more distressing things to gain wisdom and the urge for liberation. Carol, what's the relation of samadhi in relation to ending karma? Samadhi means essentially the gathering together consolidation of mental energy. Right, so you know you can call it concentration. I don't think concentration is an adequate term, frankly, um, because a samadhi, in my opinion, is about the mental energy no longer being dissipated and distracted, but gathered together in one place and settled. This means the mind's 
energy, instead of being thrown out in five different directions, is all in one place. It builds up a tremendous potential. And the potential of Samadhi is very grounded, very grounded for state. So in this way, we are much less liable to immediately fly off, do reactive actions, um, because our mind is very stabilised. So this means that that heightened reactivity that is the really uh, um, uh, dangerous thing about karma, how we can eat so easily just say a stupid thing uh, without even really thinking about it, well, we did it, and that's karma. Samadhi gives you the grounding where you don't have to react. So in a way it sort of arrests arrests the karmic process or, or lessens that karmic outflow. It also provides a, a place where the samadhi are less, uh, sometimes not at all, tuned into sense contact, sights and sounds. Um, so the mind is deeply withdrawn into itself. This means you're not getting affected by sights and sounds. It also means that in that withdrawal into one's mind, you're able to see more clearly what is in there. You know, what's at the bottom of the pool of the mind? And so samadhi gives you that possibility to look into these underlying tendencies that otherwise we might never really honestly be able to see. Um, so it gives you the possibility for insight. You have the firmness and you have the clarity um, and you have the ability to resist craving, that urge to rush out. You've got something to anchor yourself in. That's, that's its, its significance. It's not the end of the game by any means, but it does make it a lot simpler and it gives the mind the strength. The ending of karma is through insight, which is through you know, the fundamental sense of ongoing continuity. Yeah. I do this, I become that, this affects me in the future. That insight severs that. So when there's no abiding, ongoing self, there isn't anywhere for the karmic process to keep running. You're like you've cut the cable on the electric current. You see what I mean? Yeah. So it can't jump through. And that's what insight is about. Samadhi, you, you definitely change the current and, and put it all in the battery, you might say, so it doesn't run out, but it's still potentially there. Insight, having moderated it, I don't need to keep adding to myself. I don't need to keep that sense of continuity going. And there's a sense of coolness that's, uh, that occurs with that, that means that mind definitely can, can experience that. Stuart? There's a number of questions about collective karma. Is there a concept of collective karma? There's a concept, and I think it has some, some uh, relevance to it. Uh, because of this sense in which we are, we are very much affected by the social um, context. Mm. You know, so a lot of our personality anyway is formed by the collective within which we live. Obviously the language, the concepts, the attitudes you're getting from the media. Everybody else is saying this, doing that. You pick it up. They don't talk about that. You never learn about it. right? So the collective mindsets shape what our own mindset goes into, right? You know, if you never see the sign of a peaceful person, you don't think such a thing exists. 
if you never see, if you never recognize, if you never find anybody who is trustworthy and harmless, you don't think such a thing exists. If you're in a situation where it's constant violence, that's what you become because you absorb the collective qualities that your mind picks up from around you. So, yeah, and perhaps that's for looking at it very crudely, but I think we can all be aware of um, uh, nationalism, national prejudice, racial prejudice, um, attitudes that are, that are kind of infiltrated through the media and through past history, uh, and you don't even realise you're there because you don't see anything different. You know, you don't even think about it. They, they just get built in by default. So that's the collective karma that we inherit. Uh, now, it's also possible, beautifully, that you get an enlightened being who's got enough power to turn the collective. And this is what, loosely speaking, the fourfold assembly, the sangha and so forth, the, what's called the punya ketang, the field of blessings, means the extended community of Kalyanamita, you put your own energy into that, you generate a counterculture, right? So then you, through your own karma, if you put it into a, a karmic accumulator that's for the benefit, you can have, your energy can have profound effect on many people throughout time. So yeah, it works both ways, good and bad. <laughs> Any questions from the floor? Mudita in Toronto. Thank you. I've uh, noticed a pattern with some people that I know, both adults and uh, disturbingly with children, that certain things um, that I or other people may say can lead the other people to lying. So if it's me saying something, does this mean I'm causing them to create negative karma for themselves? Is this an act of ill will toward them that causes me to create negative karma for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, well, bear in mind that you can't actually take charge of somebody else's karma. It's their decision to act upon it or not. Um, you know. Um, so what you say, you know, you may think, oh, that encouraged them. Maybe it did. But the thing is, when it's decisive, Karma switches on when there's a decisive engagement. Something goes, yeah. yeah. And that's up to me. You say something, and I think, oh, well, she's just getting on. I go, oh, yeah. Then that's mine. That's mine. That bit's mine. Now, if you said something thinking, I know, I'll do this so that he'll do that, then yeah, sure. You know, you, you have the karmic result of a deceitful or a manipulative action, right? So that you get the result of that. Um, you get the result of being manipulative. I get the result of lying. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you're not clean. But I, I'm not clean either. I can't say it's all her. Mm. Now if you didn't have an intention. And they acted anyway. That's theirs. If you say something that you might think that offends them. But it's truthful. Well... If your intention is not to offend them, but to be truthful, dispassionately truthful, then the Buddha says, for example, in his own case, there are times when I say things that are unpleasant, difficult to hear and truthful, and I find the right time and place to say it. There are times I say the things that are unpleasant, 
and difficult to hear, it's not the right time, I don't say it. <laughs> but I always, if I speak something, I speak the truth. I don't always speak because I don't think it's the right time. See what I mean? There's a moderation uh, in which you feel, look, I've tried the best I can to bring around an effect that sobers somebody or straightens them or encourages them to look at themselves. My intention is not to hurt them. I try to find a place and a time when I say, excuse me, may I mention this? I'm sorry this may be difficult to hear, but I feel concerned for your welfare. Could I mention this? You know, So you're making every gesture to try to get that to land in as acceptable place as possible. That's really good. That's skillful. They might still get offended, but, you know, that's, that's theirs. The last part of the question about suppressing my own voice. Is there any harm in doing that? Is it, or is that just me creating more self? Or in speaking up, am I releasing that sense of self? You're not necessarily releasing it by speaking it. Um, there's a time and a place to say things. Um, so it depends on what you're suppressing and why. Now if you're suppressing because you think it makes you look stupid, maybe that's not a good enough reason. If you're suppressing it because you realise this person is, is not going to be receptive, or it's not the right time, or they're already overwhelmed with so many other things they can't take it on, maybe it's the time to hold back. The suppression often comes from a learned behaviour not to speak up. Well, you need to moderate that, because if that's a piece of old karma, and so the act of, I think, I'll reframe what I said before, it can be releasing in a sense that if your karmic habit is to repress things, to not repress them, that's a good thing. But you need to not repress them in a way that if you're going to speak to somebody else, then you need to prepare the ground, because they... Yeah, because it's not appropriate you just unload on anybody and so on. But at the same time, is it possible, I don't expect you to react or change anything, I just feel I'd like to ventilate something, and it would be helpful if you could help me, just give me a pair of ears. Um, you know, and then you prepare the ground and you can just speak something out, and that itself has got a certain, you can look at it more objectively then, rather than it's all, tangled up inside you. So there's a moderating of that process, but certainly I, would, uh, I wouldn't recommend suppression as a, as a... You know, it's useful to have gear so you can put the handbrake on, but don't live on a handbrake. Chaz, I'm just wondering, as it's lockdown, I guess, have you got a little bit of free time on your hands at the moment? I'm zooming, I'm zooming all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. I have less free time, actually, strangely enough, because <laughs> of this kind of telecommunication stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all good. It's all good. Uh, it's all good stuff. Hi, Andrew. Yeah. Um, after quarantine is lifted, would you consider continuing running these sessions so that people around the world would have a chance to? <laughs> I think the idea has some merit. 
I'm really quite impressed and uh, gladdened by the, uh, the accessibility and the reach of, of this process, even though it's no, nothing like as good as actually meeting people. Still, you know, Chittos Monastery, you get maybe 15 people in the Dhamma Hall. And uh, that's great, but at the same time, there's something about real life, just being able to address, what, 75 people or sometimes more. So I, I think it will continue. Good. People are pleased about that. Anybody else? Nanda has been trying to speak. Thank you. Right. Ajahn, have you made use of the selfie stick to um, make the video around the monastery yet? I have done a few, but I haven't recently because of um, too busy. <laughs> Few, but we haven't seen any. Well, it takes a while for them to get through the process, you see. It's got to be filmed and it's got to be techno person's got to tweak it and twiddle it. He's got 15 other things to do. He has to go to the abbot who has the supervisor. He's got 15 other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm revving up to it. I want to do one outside when the weather's nice. Yeah, you mentioned that holding a stick and walk around and but you know, it's it's not sure. easy when you just look at your own face. What you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Alexandra. Thank you so much. Just being in your presence and everybody's presences uh, in made me feel bright karma. <laughs> With everything going on in the world. Do you feel, do you get a sense, is this a reset going on? Um, I think it's too early to say, but I'm certainly both horrified and delighted. You know, horrified at some things and delighted by the responses. To me, the, there's a sense of, hey, I think there is a change of consciousness occurring. You know, there's, there's lots of people... Of ver all kinds of varieties of people getting together around themes that are to do with honesty and truth and non-violence. That's really good, you know. So I think, yeah, there's definitely potential for change. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Okay.